0: Billy, we, you're not the only civil engineer this morning, there's actually two, so uh, God says to seek the peace of the city, I'm getting a vision for what this is going to look like uh, here in the future as we have more of those folks around, so thank you guys. Hey, uh, good morning, my name is Brandon, I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown, so glad to have you with us uh, this morning, uh, worshiping together, really grateful for the, the goodness of God, and every time we get to celebrate membership, it's a, it's a good reminder of what it means to be family, what it means to be committed to each other uh, we kind of live in a, in a moment where uh, the only thing some of us are committed to is not being committed to anything, and, uh, and it's good to see people just really root themselves down and have a vision for the thriving of a people. Um, so I have a confession as we get started uh, in our teaching time this morning. Um, next year, July of 2020, I'm going to be 40 years old, and for some of you that may seem like so far off in the future, yep, Lynn, I'm going to be 40. Uh, she's known me since I was about 16. Um, I'm going to be 40, for some of you that seems way off in the future, for some of you that seems so long ago, Uh, and for some of you it's like right now. But my confession is uh, I do not know what I'm doing in life. Uh, Like truly, like the older that I get, the more I realize I don't know a whole lot about life. Um, As I get into 40, uh, there's a lot of confusion, right? There's so many decisions that have to be made, so many things that feel like so important and yet, um, there's no playbook on how to make any of these decisions. I'm trying to figure out what high school to send uh, my son to. I'm trying to figure out uh, what the next 10 or 15 years of uh, being a pastor look like, what, what it looks like to be uh, a good husband, a good father. Uh, there's, there's conflict that emerges the older that you get. Right? You live a little bit with people, and you begin to realize uh, that it's so easy just to, to get hurt in relationships and trying to navigate those tensions uh, and... Be reconciled is really challenging the older that you get. There's a lot of complexity and, uh, in life, right? There's so many layers. There's complexity to, to your identity, and there's complexity to living in the city. And what I long for in this season is actually simplicity, but not the simplicity of being uh, in your 20s when like everything seems easy, maybe, but the, complexity that's on the the simplicity that's on the other side of complexity where you can hold kind of tension and contradiction, and you can, you can, uh, you can see life at in the many layers and facets and, and, and grow wise as you deal with things. I was reading this article uh, in the New York Times a couple years ago uh, as I was beginning to think ahead about uh, just my 40s. And it was called Surviving Your 40s. It was written by a French journalist. Uh, and she said something that really resonated with me. She said, um, the strangest part of the 40s is that we're now the ones attending parent-teacher conferences and cooking the turkey on Thanksgiving. These days, when I think someone should really do something about that, I realize with alarm that that someone is me, right? Like, like it's the time when you become a real adult. It's the time when you begin to look around and realize, um, I'm the one that's now responsible. I'm the one that's responsible for running this business. I'm the one that's responsible for this family. Like, nobody else is coming to bail me out. We are, for better or worse, the adults. And, and that really gets me anxious. Right? Like, who is going to show me, who's going to show us what it looks like to become a mature person, a mature human being, a mature disciple of Jesus, a mature husband and father and leader? Especially when you look around our neighborhood here in Broadrupal, a lot of our elders have moved away. And sometimes it feels like uh, we live in this, uh, what Robert Belai, a sociologist, called a sibling society, right? Where we're with our peers. And all of us are kind of getting together going, we have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea how to raise our kids. We have no idea. And so we're just hopefully doing an okay job. And and that is kind of what's drawn me back to this passage that I want to talk about uh, this morning. So I kind of lied last week, not on purpose, but I intended to kind of shut down our Exodus series and begin to move forward and just do a standalone message this week. But I'm so fascinated with uh, the person of Moses, and so I'm actually going to extend our little uh, Exodus journey one more week. And I want to do something that may seem unrelated to what I'm talking about, but I think is very um, insightful for this journey that we're on towards maturity. Um, and it's, it's the death of Moses. So I actually want to look at how Moses ended his life and the journey that God had him on during the last third of his life, the last 40 years of his life, that resulted in him on a mountaintop with God looking out over the promised land and finding peace. So let's uh, read this together. Deuteronomy chapter 34. If you have a Bible, go ahead, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Read these uh, last couple verses together. And then we'll talk about what it looks like to aspire to maturity. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. The Lord then said to him, This is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have in this narrative arc of Moses' life and story, the end of Moses' life here. And we, if you remember this arc, uh, Moses starts as this young and confused leader. He's given this call from God at the burning bush to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And Moses is confused. He's a man who lived between two worlds. He was adopted. Uh, he was Hebrew, but he was raised in the halls of power uh, in Egypt. And so he's adopted. He's biracial. He's, he's, he's growing up and, uh, you know, experienced poverty and then privilege. So all these things are happening. And Moses. Uh, in this sadness, deals with a lot of anger as a young man, right? So he goes from this kind of impatient man who murders somebody early on in Exodus to now being called the servant of God who is able to find rest on a mountain looking out on the promised land and being at peace. And the question that nags me here at the end of the story of Moses' life is um, why would God bring him up on the mountain and allow him to see the promised land and not go in? I mean, is this God being like, kind of like a bitter parent who's like, I told you so, Moses. Like, you shouldn't have done this. And like, if you would have just done it, I'm going to let you see it, but you're not going to go. I mean, is this God shaming him, taunting him? Being, it seems kind of cruel. Like, why would God show him the very thing that his, his, his desires and longings have moved towards for 80 years, only to pull it away and say, nope, you're going to die right here? God takes him up on the mountain, takes his life. So this is a question that I've been wrestling with. Um, if you remember why, how Moses got to this place, um, it was through disobedience, right? So Moses in Numbers 20, you can read about this story in Numbers 20, uh, has got the people out into the wilderness. They've, they've been liberated from slavery, and as they were apt to do, they begin to complain against Moses. God brings them out into the desert. There's no water and so they grumble, they kind of assemble themselves against Moses, and they begin to say to Moses, why did you bring us out here in the desert, right? It's a common refrain throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers. Why did you bring us out here to die? It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt, right? They had Egypt in their bones, and right, we said that God is not just getting them out of Egypt, he's also getting Egypt out of them, and so they're still learning what it looks like to trust, what it looks like to obey, and so Moses, in kind of a flash of His youthful anger and impatience, right, because old habits die hard. Compulsions stay with us as we mature, as we age. We still struggle and wrestle with some of the the, the restless energy of our youth. Moses, in a flash of anger, disobeys God's instructions. God tells him, I want you to strike the rock, and I'm going to provide water for the people. And we don't exactly know, scholars don't know exactly what it was that Moses did, but God says, whatever he did, he strikes the rock, and he gets angry, and he says, you're a bunch of rebels, and so I'm going to provide water for you, and he strikes the rock. So we don't know if it's exactly like that he strikes it in anger, if it was because he said he was going to provide water, but God says, you've dishonored me in front of the people, you've disobeyed my command, and now, because of your sin, and because of the people's sin of grumbling and complaining, God tells Moses that he's not going to enter the Promised Land. Joshua, his apprentice, would be the one to lead the next generation into Canaan to inherit the Promised Land. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you can see in the story the disappointment that must be here as Moses begins to climb the mountain. There's deep disappointment. It's not difficult to imagine the deep disappointment, the, 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 the deep disappointment that Moses must have felt right. This is his life's work. This is his life's calling. Right. Think about all the things that Moses has had to go through. 80 years of preparation, 40 years in the wilderness of solitude, 40 years of actually liberating the people from slavery. He's been through the plagues. He's been through the Red Sea, through Sinai, through the golden calf, through the wilderness journey. And now God, at the end of his life, takes him up on the mountain and says, I'm going to let you see your dream, but I'm not going to let you lead the people there that terrifies me. It's like my worst fear that I would be the one to kind of go to the brink and not be able to fulfill those dreams and longings that God's placed on my heart. Moses finished the work that God gave him to do, but notice, he did not fulfill his desires. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 29 actually recounts an earlier episode right at the beginning of the wilderness journey where he begs God to let him go and just see the promised land. And God says, no, I'm not going to let you go. I mean, that kind of disappointment is something that every leader must eventually face. We all must face the reality that our dreams and our ambitions and our longings will ultimately be incomplete and unfulfilled. What we start, another generation, will take to the finish line. Whether that's in business, whether that's in your relationships, right? Like in all of life, like Moses, we will experience this ache, this inconsolable ache of incomplete work, unfinished longing, unfulfilled desire. In the book of Proverbs, um, Solomon talks about it as, hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's this heart sickness of not being able to see something through to the end that is a part of living in a broken world. And like Moses, some of this incompleteness will be the result of self-inflicted wounds, bad decisions that we make, sin and disobedience and things that we've done that will not allow us to see the finish lines of our relationships, our marriages, our our relationships with our kids, our businesses. Some of that is on us. We will have self-inflicted wounds some of that is also going to be inflicted by other people. People hurt us. People disappoint us. People let us down. And some of the wounds that we carry are because somebody else has betrayed us and abandoned us or left us. And some of it's just going to happen because of the limits we face as mortal creatures. You can't live forever. Like, unless Jesus comes back, you will die. You will have to lay down your work. I mean, Moses, relative to the rest of his family was actually a young man when he died. He died at 120. His family, his parents and his grandparents, father and grandfather, lived longer than he did. So he was relatively young um, for that time. Like Moses, what we plant, others will often water and grow and build and eventually tear down. I don't know about you, but that scares me to death. Especially as a person who likes to kind of achieve and who likes to strive and who has quite a bit of ambition for my life. Karl Rahner, the theologian, says it like this, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we finally learn here, we finally learn that here in this life, all symphonies must remain unfinished. See, what we do with that incomplete work, what we do with our heartaches and our hurts and our failures and our incompletions will make us or break us. And that's really, I believe, the gift that Moses' death has to offer us. Like there's more happening here in this story than just disobedience and disappointment and discipline from God. Although that is a part of the story, Moses is experiencing the discipline of God. The people, the entire generation of adults will not go into the promised land because of their disobedience. God takes disobedience seriously. But I believe there's more at play here for us to learn I believe what we see here in this final scene is God actually liberating Moses. Moses, the one who has spent his entire life liberating people from from oppression, now is going to experience his own liberation with God. He is going to be freed from the the burdens that he's been carrying for generations. He's going to lay down his loneliness that's been so much a part of his story as a leader He's going to get to lay down his authority and finally experience for himself the fullness of God's presence that he's been offering other people. That's what's happening on Mount Nebo, right? Canaan is going to be, yes, the promised land, but as you read on through the rest of the the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament, Canaan is going to be a place of war. Canaan is going to be a place of violence and ongoing rebellion and political strife, and eventually we're going to see exile. And so God is gently saying to Moses, I want your eyes to see this, but make no mistake, don't be idealistic about the promised land. It's going to be war, and I'm going to allow you to enter into rest. You're not going to be the one that's going to fight those wars. So I want to kind of talk about what I believe Moses can teach us about that journey. This is the journey towards full maturity in the presence of God. Like the arc of Moses' life is from immaturity to maturity with the presence of God. What does it look like to mature, to aspire towards? Maturity with the presence of God. This journey, I believe, is the work of interior transformation that God desires for every disciple of Jesus. And especially if you're a leader, this is the journey that God will take you on. This journey towards maturity is a work of interior transformation that every disciple of Jesus must go through in order to experience the fullness of God's presence. And here's, I think, a simple definition. What does it look like to be mature, right? Like, I think all of us are asking that question. I was talking to somebody in their 60s after the first service. Like, I don't even think of myself as mature. That's the kind of funny thing. Like, if you're 20, you're like, I'm not mature. If you're 40, you don't think you're mature. Apparently, if you're even into your 70s, you don't think you're mature. Like, we're all kind of asking that question. What does it actually look like to be mature? And here's the thing we see with the death of Moses, I think Moses defines maturity as making God his promised land. Making God his promised land. And I think for all of us, this is the journey from immaturity to maturity. It is learning to redirect our ambitions from achieving our own promised land to receiving God as our real promised land. See, Moses had a a calling to take the people to the promised land And we see him here at the end of his life actually receiving God as his promised land, which is why he's able to, with palms up, literally walk up the mountain, fully surrendered, not arguing with God, not fighting with God, right? Like, that's what's happening here. God, there's been a shift. God is now Moses' promised land. God is the fullness of his inheritance. And he says, if I have God, then death is not something to be resisted. I don't have to fight For my own promised land. And I want you to see here, like this again, notice the kindness of God here. Notice the kindness of God, not just the discipline of God, but the kindness and the intimacy that is between Moses and God. I mean, this is the climax of Moses' life here on the Mount, right? Like, um, he allows Moses to see the promised land. Moses is referred to here, uh, verse 5, as the servant of the Lord. Not as the disobedient one who struck the rock. Like, it's not that guy. He says, the servant of the Lord. Uh, This is the only place in Scripture where God is said to bury someone himself. It's the only place in the Bible that it says God buried somebody. I mean, that kind of tenderness in his relationship with God. God buries him and then doesn't tell anyone where he's buried. There's an anonymity here that I think signals the kind of rest that God's inviting Moses into. Like even the fact that his body was anonymous and was buried in some random place ensures that his bones won't be picked up and disturbed or that his bones won't become the site of some kind of religious pilgrimage. The rabbis used to say that Moses died here on the mountain at the mouth of God and that his soul was taken away by by a kiss from the Lord's mouth. That's the kind of intimacy and communion that Moses enjoyed with God. Moses would write about this in uh, Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90 was a poem or a song that Moses wrote, probably as an older man, reflecting on his journeys in the wilderness with God. And notice what he says, like in the midst of all of the disappointment and the incomplete symphony, the unfinished symphony, and all of the wounds that he had experienced up to this point as a leader. Here's what he writes in Psalm 90. Charles Spurgeon calls this his death march poem. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, the mountains that Moses himself walked on, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us And for as many years as we have seen evil, we can find joy and gladness in the midst of pain and brokenness. See, death for Moses was not an end to be resisted, but the final step in his communion and his intimacy with God. This was not God saying, here, look at the promised land. Now, you're not going to get it. You're going to die. This is God saying, hey, look at the promised land. Come home with me. I am your promised land. I am better than anything you could get in the wilderness. I am better than anything you could get in the promised land. I'm better than the clusters of grapes. I'm I'm better than the land flowing with milk and honey. I am your milk and honey. I am your grapes. I am your treasure. I am your very great reward. I am a refuge. And now it's time for you to come home. This is the disposition of a leader who understands, as a, a person who understands maturity, right? Who understands that God is their promised land. I mean, now Moses is seeing God face to face. Now he is, he is experiencing the fullness of friendship with God. And we know that this friendship with God doesn't end at death. It deepens, it heightens with death. Because the next time, if you remember, when's the next time we see Moses in the scriptures make an appearance? Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's transfigured. The glory of God drops down into a cloud. Very similar imagery here as the book of Exodus. And the next time we see Moses, the friend of God, he's speaking to Jesus, the son of God, and what are they talking about but Jesus' exile? Literally, the word there is they talked about his exile. I mean, God is still into eternity entrusting his most important work to the man Moses. That's a beautiful picture of what it looks like. To mature, to understand that the goal is presence of God, friendship with God. That's it. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's to grow deeper and deeper and deeper in communion and friendship with God till one day God kisses your soul away and you go home to be with him and enjoy the fullness of his presence. It's the same thing that Paul would write in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 1, to the church at Philippi. He says, for me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. I mean, Paul is so annoying, right? Like, if I'm alive, I've got Christ, I'm, I'm awesome. If I'm dead, it's gain, it's better. I mean, that's a very annoying person to be around, right? Like, no matter what you do to me, you cannot shake me. To live is Christ, to die is fullness. I see God face to face, friendship with God. It's the same confidence that drove Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as he faced injustices during the civil rights movement. In his last speech that he gave, the night before he was murdered in Memphis, he had these words to say, quoting this, I believe, this very passage. He says, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the Lord. And this is a man who has an unshakable confidence. God is his promised land. I don't fear anyone. And I want you to see here, when we have this kind of confidence in God, as we move towards maturity of really learning to abandon our ambitions for our own promised land and to make God our promised land, there is a liberation that happens. There is a freedom of the soul that begins to take place, where as we grow older and as we mature, we get more generative, not less. We become more alive, not less. I was reading an author that he was talking about uh, the journey of aging. And he says, basically what's happening as we get older is that God is turning all of us into monks, right? Like on the inside, even though our bodies are beginning to break down, like even the very act of waking up in the middle of the night and having to use the restroom and all these weird things that happen to your body as you get older. He says, what do monks do? They get up and they pray like three or four times a night. That's what God's doing. That kind of liberation of the soul to understand that I can actually get older. Notice this about Moses. The older he got, the more alive he came. Like, it says that his eyes were undimmed and that his vigor was unabated. You know what vigor is? It's, he's talking about the soul, like what people can't touch inside of you, that part of you that's immaterial but is the, the, the center of who you are. It got more alive, more expansive, more open-hearted, more mellow, more generous, more forgiving the older that he got, the more mature he became. Two things that we see here just by way of application that I believe as we experience God as our promised land, we are freed up to do as as leaders, as husbands, as fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, community citizens, right? This is the journey of discipleship for every follower of Jesus. One, we see that Moses was able to make peace with his past, he was able to make peace with his past. I mean, Mount Nebo is this place of paradox. It's a place of contradictions, of tension, right? Because think about it. On the one hand, Moses is there because of his failure, right? He failed, and the people failed. He sinned. He disobeyed. Now, remember who the author of Deuteronomy is. It's Moses, right? So um, notice here that he's walking up this mountain and he's not arguing with God. This is a different Moses than we saw 30 or 40 years ago who was not afraid to wrestle with God for something that he really wanted, right? Show me your glory, right? Moses was just pig-headed, like he he, he he was bold and brash in arguing with God. Moses doesn't edit out his failures or try to spin things in a positive light like we might if we were writing our autobiography. He just lays it all out there and yet we don't see Moses fighting. Moses is able to talk freely and tell the truth about his pain. He can talk about how people have hurt him. Like in chapter 3, verse 26, he says to the people, it's because of you that I sinned. Like he's honest. It's like, you people made me do this because you were complaining. God got angry with me, and now none of us are going to the promised land. Like our sin always has kind of a social context, Moses is not afraid to talk about that, but he also accepts without resistance the truth of his own complicity. God says throughout the book of Deuteronomy, no, Moses, it's you. You dishonored me. You did not obey me, and for that reason, Joshua is going into the wilderness, not you. So he's not afraid to, and he doesn't resist and say, well, actually, God, I have evidence over here. You don't know, like, I I got some texts. I want, you know, like, can we review the case? No, he just, he just opens up his palms and says, yeah, that's me. He's not denying He's not blaming, not justifying, not minimizing, not rationalizing, not defending. He's non-resistant. And here's the thing, as we get older and we move towards maturity, we will face a number of failures in our relationships, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with those closest to us. We will fail. We will sin against people. We will be sinned against, we will experience heartaches that we could have never imagined. We will experience hurt, deep, deep hurt, feelings of abandonment and betrayal and rejection, and it will grieve us to our core. Anybody excited about getting older, Anybody excited about that? I mean, it will happen. If it hasn't, just wait. It will. And what happens is those wounds can become sources of deep soul fatigue, They make us tired. They wear us down. They tempt us towards bitterness. They tempt us towards uh, just a sadness that can turn to depression and despair and disillusionment. where We can rage against the entire world. Ronald Rollheiser puts it like this. There's a tiredness that cannot be cured by good sleep, a good vacation, or by the right time at the right friends with the right wine. It's the deepest tiredness inside of us. It is the tiredness that stings because of hurt, that's cold because it hasn't been loved, that's callous because it's been cruelly cut, and that burns with resentment because of the neglect and rejection it's experienced. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, just file it away. You'll come back to it when you're a little bit older, maybe. The question is, what do we do with those failures? And what we see here with Moses is that, again, this paradox at work that there have been these failures, there have been these hurts, but these failures don't have the final word. Sin never has the final word. Hurt never has the final word. Brokenness never has the final word. There's something deeper beneath the brokenness. There is hopefulness underneath the pain. There is redemption underneath sin. Moses is here because of failure but he's also here because he succeeded. (laughs) That's the paradox. He finished the task that God gave to him. In the midst of the pain, Moses also experienced the kindness of God. So it's true that you can experience brokenness and that you can also experience kindness. The question is which one of those are gonna be your defining reality? He experienced the grace of God the glory of God, the friendship that he had with God. He brought the people to the brink of the promised land and did his job, did what he was called to do by God. And that is the reality, friends, of life with God. It's so confusing, so conflicting. It is beautiful and it is broken. The reality of life with God must be a mixture, a concoction, a cocktail of both both grace and sin it is both triumph and tragedy. It is failure and success. It is beauty and brokenness. If you read Moses' song in Psalm 90, he talks about the very same things. He says, man, God uncovers the secret sins of our hearts. We live life, and he says, it's a struggle, 70 or 80 years, and we're like this grass that just, you know, kind of flowers for a second and fades away, and it's gone. Life is a struggle, and it's full of pain, but God, have compassion on us. And then he goes on and he talks about the joy of living with gladness in the midst of affliction. And then that great little verse there in the middle, the pivot verse in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, that we may develop a heart of wisdom. See, that's what we need to become mature, is a heart of wisdom. A heart that knows how to deal with our past and live in the tension of the already but not yet, of the grace and the sin, the beauty, and the brokenness. And what I want to say to us on our journeys to maturity is that humbly accepting and integrating all of these contradictions in yourself and in the world, like integrating these into your self-understanding is what it means to have a heart of wisdom. Some of us only want to live in the brokenness. We've like parked in the brokenness, and it's all dark for us, right? And we're all about glorying in what's wrong with the world and our cynicism and what people are not giving to me, not doing with me, not relating to me. We can live there. But it's also true that the grace of God is true, that it's good, that there is is the possibility for healing. Some of us like to camp out in that, and we just like to go, everything's awesome, everything's cool, Everything's great, and we want to look only at the positive side of the grace. We want to look at the achievements and the success, and we ignore these things over here, but reality with God is both. It's living in the paradox. You see, failure was the catalyst for Moses' growth. Failure put Moses in touch with hard truths about himself and about God and about other people, and Moses allowed that failure he held that failure and he allowed God to kind of hold him in that failure to the degree that it cultivated a deeper wisdom that left his vigor unabated right into the very end. That's what we must do as well. We must learn to hold those contradictions as part of what it means to live life with God in the real world. Florida Scott Maxwell, psychologist at age 85, wrote these words. You need only claim the events of your life To make yourself yours. When you truly possess all you have been and done, you are fierce with reality. I love that. I want to be a a person that's fierce with reality. Thomas Merton says it like this: there is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dimmed light, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness. This mysterious unity and integrity is wisdom. Underneath the brokenness, there is a unity, there is a wisdom, there is a hidden wholeness that holds together both beauty and brokenness. And in the end, the Bible says God wins, hope wins, love wins, redemption wins. And so that's part of what it means to be able to make peace with our past. How are you doing with those wounds and losses in your life? How are you doing with the brokenness that you experience? Are you making peace or are you faking peace? It's really easy to fake peace the older that we get. Push it down, not want to deal with it, avoid it. And we end up becoming angry and resentful and bitter. Our vigor is abated, not unabated as we grow older. What doesn't get transformed, we often say, will get transmitted. What you don't deal with now, your kids have to deal with. Your grandchildren have to deal with. Our community has to deal with. So God wants us to make peace with our past, to be able to climb the mountain with arms and palms up and arms open and saying, God, whatever you have for me, you are my promised land. You are better. You are more. You are the ultimate end for which I was created. And you are holding all of these tensions together. And one day in Christ, you will reconcile them all to yourself. That's the life of faith. Second thing quickly is that Moses then was able to bless the rising generation of leaders. We won't spend a lot of time here, but notice that when God is our promised land, we can joyfully lay down our power, we can lay down our achievements, we can lay down our titles in order to create space for the rising generation of leaders to step up and flourish. Moses spends the last couple chapters here in Deuteronomy blessing everyone. Like anyone that will look at him, he wants to just bless them. He wants to speak words of love and grace, and hope, and promise. He does it with Joshua. He says, Joshua, don't be afraid. You're going to take my place, and it's going to be scary, right? You're leading a pretty wily group of people, right? But like, God is with you. Just as he was with me, he will be with you. Speaks out of the depth of his own experience and says, hey, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. God will go before you, and he will be with you. He blesses the people, with words of affirmation and encouragement. He leverages this inner vitality to prepare them for the difficult journey ahead. Moses goes out strong. I mean, he, like you see him in these last couple of chapters, he preaches his best sermons, most scholars would say. He, he's singing songs. Like, he's so crazy and like self-forgetful. He's just like singing to over the people. He's blessing them. He's fighting wars with them. He's governing them. Moses' diminishment leads to empowerment. His diminishment empowers Joshua and those who will go into the promised land. He doesn't need to compete with young leaders. He doesn't feel threatened by their presence. He is totally free to bless them because he doesn't need anything from them. He's laid down his power. He's made God his promised land so he can welcome others into leadership and say, God bless you. I see you. I delight in you. I believe in you. Man, what a way to die. What a way to hold a vision for dying that blesses other people rather than curses them. Henry Nowen says this, There is such a thing as a good death. We are responsible for the way we die. We have to choose between clinging to life in such a way that death becomes nothing but a failure or letting go of life and freedom so that we can be given to others as a source of hope and I want to die well. I want to, I want to mature well so that my life is one that's given away, one that is one of blessing, like one of the saddest things I see with leaders and as we grow older is watching a generation of leaders who curse the young instead of blessing the young and marginalize the young. They're threatened by the young. They say, oh, you know, like you see, you'll hear people say this, the younger generation, millennials, they're just narcissistic, and they're, it's like, what generation wasn't narcissistic exactly? Like they've been saying this and writing about this for, you know, thousands of years. Like every generation is narcissistic. Okay, help them. Like jump into the game, bless them. How are they going to move from that to a life of blessing if we don't do it? That is our calling in life to be leaders who instead of grasping and clutching to power and who and grasping and clutching because of fear we learn that maturity means blessing. Right? And I see this so often. It's so hard for some of us to bless, especially as we age, as our roles change, particularly men, because our identity is so invested in what we do instead of who we are. And then the disorientation of retirement and the sunset years, and these things begin to kick in, and all of a sudden we get anxious and we get depressed because we no longer know who we are. If I'm not doing anything, who am I? What do I have to offer the young? Am I useless? Like, these are the questions that we're asking of ourselves. Do I have anything to offer? Do I have anything to contribute? And Moses says, Yes, you can bless the young, you can bless the less mature. If you don't do it, who's going to do it? The word, the idea of blessing comes from a Latin word, benediciri, something like that. My kids would know they study Latin, which means basically to speak well of. Blessing is an important part of biblical narrative. God blesses the world in Genesis chapter one. He says, it's good. It's very good. I delight in what I've created. God blesses Jesus at his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, in the very last act of his life with his disciples in Luke 24, takes them out and blesses them and then ascends to the right hand of the Father. The idea of blessing is, I see you. (laughs) I delight in your energy I'm not threatened by you, and I'm going to give myself for you. Ronald Rollheiser, again, last one, says this. We bless others when we see them in the Bible, when we delight in their energy rather than feel threatened by it, and we give away some of our own life to help resource their lives. Sadly, the verse is also true. We curse others when we demand that they see and admire us, when we demand that they speak well of us, when we use their lives to build up our own. A gesture of blessing feeds others, a cursing feeds off of them. The journey towards maturity is one of blessing, rising leaders, children, grandchildren, neighbors. The mature have gifts of experience and wisdom and presence and character to offer the young, and the young have gifts of energy and vision and hope to offer the mature. This is the power of blessing, and we need more mature leaders in our body who delight in the responsibility and the privilege of blessing. And it starts as simple as a, a conversation, starting up a conversation, not allowing yourself to feel insecure and intimidated by a younger person or a younger leader, but just saying, hey, I see you. Like after the first service, a guy in his 60s said, you know what, I'm going to apply your sermon. He walked over and invited two couples out to lunch and just said, you know what, I want to let you know that I see you and I'm glad that you're here and I want to share some of the experience that God's given me into your life. That's, that's, it's as simple as that and it is as hard as that. It is opening up your life and sharing out of your experiences. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. God has been with me. He will be. Is God your promised land, right? Is God the one to whom you're looking for joy and satisfaction? Can you go to him to reconcile those tensions that you live in as you experience life in a broken world, but try to find joy and gladness in the midst of it? And are you free to turn around and bless those that God's placed around you? This is the imitation to maturity. This is the imitation to a life well lived in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. I thank you that you are not a vindictive God who rubs our noses in our mistakes and our failures and our sins and our wounds. But you're a God who invites us to healing. You're a God that invites us to transformation, to experience in our souls your goodness and your fullness of life that you have to offer. You have come that we may live life abundantly, a life that is, yes, full of sin, full of disappointment, but also full of promise and full of potential and full of the promise of a hidden wholeness. And so God, I pray that we would embrace that aspiration to live towards you, to understand that there is more than just our pain, there is more than just our sadness and our grief, that you created us for communion with you and that you will bring us home one day to the fullness of that. So God, help us to live in light of that now, to begin to practice that now by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.